Denial. It's not just a river in Egypt. A growing number of Americans continue to question science to the point of denying the very findings scientists publish. The widespread rejection of scientific findings presents a perplexing puzzle to those who ascribe to the use of critical thinking skills and the application of the scientific method to discover fact-based truth. As a country, the United States became a global power on the back of science and technological innovation. So as a nation where every man, woman, and child relies on the technological marvel of the internet to find information and entertain themselves, the denial of science becomes the ultimate example of cognitive dissonance. Sit back, kick up your feet, and follow us down the rabbit hole that is science denial in America. Welcome to the excited states of America. Greetings and salutations, fellow Americans and listeners from all points around the globe. I'm George. And I'm Martha. And today we put on our lab coats and pocket protectors. We're going to do a deep dive into science denial, how it's happening, and what are the outcomes of such rejection. This may seem like a minor issue on the list of things that ail the country at the moment, but we believe this is at the core of all things that cause our collective heartburn. If we cannot rely on science to make determinations of what is reality, and we cannot agree that the outcomes are trustworthy, then how can we find solutions to big problems, like a pandemic sweeping across the globe? When we can't agree that one and one equals two, and that there is a concerted effort to present an alternative belief that one and one equal three, we find ourselves locked in a battle for the mind of the nation. Science isn't just for nerds. Science is for all of us. Science provides the very many things that we take for granted in our modern world. Science keeps us fed. Science keeps us healthy. Science keeps us connected. Science keeps us on top of the predator pyramid. Without science, we would be living in the dark ages where religion and dogma kept the human race in woeful ignorance and indentured servitude to the rich nobles. When we do not learn about science, understand how the scientific method works, and respect the incredible work done by so few so the rest of us may take advantage of the fruit of their labors, we do our society and our species a disservice. Science provides the answers to so many of the questions we have and provides products and services that keep us healthy and alive. We need to not only acknowledge science and the facts it presents to us, we need to respect the findings and those who make our lives better. Denial of science is the ultimate display of ignorance and foments intolerance along with further ignorance. In a modern world with so much information at our fingertips, this should not be the problem it is. So what is science denial? Robert Kreese, professor of philosophy from Stony Brook University, has said that there's different ways of looking at science denial. Science denial is different from anti-science, pseudoscience, and skepticism, and it's important to distinguish between them. Anti-science is a rejection of science and scientific method altogether. 
Those scientists can't be trusted. They are all corrupt and they are all on the wrong track. Those engaged in anti-science don't pretend to think scientifically or even want to. Anti-science is mainly an attitude, a personal response. Pseudoscience tries to pass off false, unreliable, or unproven claims as scientific findings, or at least as not needing any more justification. It flies in the face of the scientific method because it does not rely on a consistent methodology and peer review. This is more than an attitude. It's an activity aimed at convincing others. There's a motive behind it. It's salesmanship. It involves some product that one is seeking to foist upon others. I am certain it works because I saw it advertised on Google without appealing to more evidence to justify what makes me certain. Pseudoscience is extremely dangerous. Skepticism, on the other hand, involves doubting a specific finding for specific reasons. If I am dubious of some scientific claim because I sense some shortcoming or failure in the method by which it was obtained, or I have reason to doubt an entire class of some findings, that's skepticism. Skepticism involves taking the validity of scientific procedure for granted, but doubting that the procedure was followed in this one particular case. Finally, science denial involves accepting science and expert advice for most things. I consult engineers when I buy a house. I listen to weather people when making a decision about how to dress. But when it comes to specific things I don't like, I reject them as wrong. That's science denial in a nutshell. So would you say that skepticism is healthy where science denial may not be? It always makes sense to stand back and make sure that the science is right, that proper methodology was followed, and that outcomes are reproducible and consistent. So yes, skepticism is healthy. Science denial, on the other hand, is believing in some type of fairy tale, some type of reasoning, some type of belief that has no reason behind it. So what is the scientific method? The scientific method is a systematic way of learning about the world around us and answering questions. The key difference between the scientific method and other ways of acquiring knowledge are forming a hypothesis and then testing it with an experiment. Depending upon the field of study and the research being conducted, the scientific method may vary slightly in the steps to the method employed. Speaking generally, the scientific method relies on six steps to examine a problem. The first step is to ask a question. What is it that you want to know? The challenge here is the scope of your question. Can you ask a question that can be answered through an experiment and be able to produce consistent and reliable results? Devising a specific enough question can sometimes be the hardest part of the scientific method. Questions need to have complex answers, should be specific, and should also be focused enough to limit the research. Too broad a question can ruin the research or make research impossible. For example, a bad question would be, how do alcoholic beverages affect people? A good question would be, how does alcohol content in red wine affect postmenopausal women who suffer from migraines? The question is restricting enough that it makes it easy for the researcher to focus in on a specific variable that they can then go research. The second step in the scientific method is to conduct research. 
This means going through the body of research in the fields that could inform the answer to this question and reviewing what research has already been conducted, the findings of those research papers, and the relevance of their experiments to your research question. The third step is to form a hypothesis or an educated guess about what your research experiment is likely to find. Your research will help inform this educated guess. Normally, your hypothesis will be written either in the form of a cause and effect statement or describe the relationship between two phenomena. The fourth step is to design and conduct your experiment so you can test your hypothesis. Experiments use variables to show cause and effect relationships. The independent variable is changed and controlled, leaving you to collect data on the effect to the dependent variable. Limitations on variables is extremely important as they can introduce confounding variables that affect your independent variable, ruining your experiment or generating useless data. The fifth step is to record your observations and analyze your data. The final step is to come to a conclusion, accepting or rejecting your hypothesis and preparing your research for the peer review process. This usually results in publishing your research so other experts in your field can review your work, make comment or critique, and then learn from your findings. It is the peer review process that makes the scientific method so rigorous as others review your work or will even repeat your experiment to determine if findings are consistent and reliable. Can you give an example, maybe a concrete example, that will help someone understand this in a more concrete way? An example would be to conduct an experiment on a research question. We would gather 100 postmenopausal women and break them into groups. We would serve all but the control group varieties of red wine. The control group would get non-alcoholic wine. Researchers would observe the subjects and use a tool to determine the effect of the alcohol content of the wine on the propensity and intensity of the women's migraines. When you do an experiment, that's the foundation upon which other scientists are going to continue to build whatever that area that you're investigating or researching. Other scientists are going to continue to build on what you've found. Your findings are only the beginning, and then other scientists will add to what you've contributed to the literature. Other scientists are going to be adding to that. Yeah, because the knowledge base is always expanding. Just because we find out the answer to one question, it usually means that there is going to be a series of questions that follow up to that piece of new information we just discovered. It is part and parcel of the scientific method. We don't know everything and we are always striving to better the science that's out there. Do you think that the post-truth era makes science denial the new standard for inquiry? Yeah, that's actually a really good observation. I think that we're in a world right now where facts don't matter. Opinion and feelings are more important than what is provable. You know, you can go in and look at what people believe. Uh, there's all sorts of different research out there that indicates that people don't have don't have time for science. They're not buying into it. Well, they have a belief that's a hypothesis, and they don't want to go through the scientific method to. Prove or disprove. or disprove whether it's true. They just want to hang on to that initial belief as fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, according to Pew and Gallup, around half the country's citizens reject the facts of evolution, which is absolutely insane when you think about it. Fewer than a third 
agree there is scientific consensus on human-caused climate change, and the number who accept the importance of vaccines is is ticking downward. People are turning their backs on science in alarming numbers right now. Beliefs are difficult to budge because people don't act like scientists. They don't weigh evidence. They don't go and do the work to build out appropriate hypotheses. They don't go and develop scientific experiments to prove or disprove their their ideas. And they want to cherry pick the evidence that supports their hypothesis rather than laying out all the evidence. Um, They just want to say, well, this particular fact supports, you know, my hypothesis, even though there may be 30 other facts that don't. Yeah, the, the average the average guy in the street is actually more susceptible to confirmation bias, finding information that confirms what they think they believe more than anything else. And in this in this world where there is a ton of information out there and a ton of misinformation and disinformation out there, people are more than willing to accept the first piece of information they stumble across. This is where recency bias comes into play. They'll read something and they'll be like, hey, that sounds good. I believe that more so than going in and digging deeper and finding extra information that also supports that particular theory. From primary source points of reference, instead they will go to some guy's website where he has no expertise on the subject matter in any shape or form and get that information and say, oh yeah, this is as good as this guy's information over here, even though that guy has a PhD in the particular field of study and has been studying the subject matter for 20 to 30 years. But this other particular website that's just a blog of some kid in his parents' basement is considered equal. It's a false equivalency, and yeah. that's that's a massive problem that we see. People are giving equal weight to anyone and everyone's opinions rather than giving uh, more weight to people who are experts in a field. Yeah, and I, th- I think that also boils down to social identity and in-group membership. They play a real big driver in the beliefs that people have. You know, for someone, say, like living in the creationist community, odds are they are not going to accept any information that comes from a science textbook. They're not going to believe any type of information that comes from a science journal. They're instead going to fall back to scripture. They're going to fall back to information that may be generated or ginned up from somebody who works within that particular community that is trying to prove a theological point more than a scientific point. Right. So in the age of social media and instant gratification, do you think that the scientific method might be too complex and require too much of an investment of time to resonate with consumers? Oh, definitely so. There is so much work that has to go into understanding science. It's not like sitting in front of the TV and paying half attention to the TV while you're also texting with your friends on your phone. You actually have to pay attention. You have to understand the depth of the subject matter being discussed. And a lot of these journals that you go and you read information from, research journal articles are not easy to read. A lot of people think that they're boring, dry, and way over their head. And for most people, yeah, 100% right. Depending upon the subject matter, I hate reading journal articles. But you know what? If you want to understand something, 
and you want to get the straight poop on something, a journal article is the place to go. These are the people who know what the heck is going on. They're the ones doing the experimentation. They're the ones who are best suited to explain the entirety of the field to you, the consumer and reader of the information. Well, and as a layperson, there's a thing called an abstract, which gives you an overview of the findings of that particular research. So as a layperson, you could rely pretty well on reading an abstract and getting an idea of what the findings were if you didn't want to go into the specifics of the entire article and the methodology and, and the analysis. You can read the abstract and at least get the idea of what the findings were of that particular experiment. That's an abstract idea, but that's a great idea. <laughs> One of the problems that we see with social media is the complete lack of nuance. It's really important to understand the depth of an issue, and social media is horrible for that. Social media is all about scratching the surface. It's all about trying to understand things in, and I'm not even talking bite-sized amounts. I'm talking a nibble. Yeah, well, how much information can you get from a tweet? Not a lot. Yeah, not a lot at all. I think that it's important that people understand that when you're talking about big, complex problems, there is a lot of nuance in how things are studied, in how things are um, explained. I think it's important that people also understand that science is iterative in nature. And again, people are not in that particular frame of mind. They think that, well, a scientist said this. They're never going to change off of that position. That's not the way the scientific method works. You may go and do some research that leads you to A. You may go and do further research on that exact same point, and it may change that perspective, that view on that issue just a little bit so that maybe it changes the findings from the last experiment. It may go and prevent new context that we need to understand on that particular subject matter. Which is one of the one of the reasons why people are having such a hard time with the coronavirus, the pandemic that we're in right now, because they are, it's a novel virus. Um, it's something that researchers are studying and they're continuing to learn as they go. And yes, they may say one thing one day and it may change the next because they've gathered additional information. And because it, it is affecting such a massive population that they then have to take in all the variables from that particular population and try and figure out where the commonalities are. When but, you're the, but the problem is people are saying, well, science is wrong because they keep changing their mind. No, that is the scientific method. The way they're looking at it is that they, they don't come from an understanding of how science works, which is why I'm glad that you mentioned the scientific method and, and how it operates because people think when you say one thing that it's going to be that way forever and it's not. No, things evolve. Just like Darwin said, things will continue to evolve. The scientific method is set up to take into consideration that continual evolution. Now, you look at immunology, that is based right away on evolution. Everything that we go and do as far as trying to find ways to protect us from the common cold, the flu, whatever. Immunology is all about recognizing that viruses continue to evolve. That's why the, we get a different flu shot each and every year. Because the flu continues to evolve. It changes from year to year. And, it, and as it moves through the population, yeah, the virus itself will... It mutates. Yeah. 
it mutates and those mutations pass on to other people and it becomes either more virulent or it becomes less virulent, you know, strong or weak. So I think that it's important that people understand that, yes, evolution plays into almost everything that, that we observe. Just coming back real quick to social media, the thing that really bothers me, and I see this a lot on Facebook, for example, is that people will post things. And when you dig deeper into their thinking about why they're posting it, you find out in many cases that they've never read past the headline of the article that they're promoting on their Facebook page. They read a headline, they post it and they never actually even read the article that it links to to find out what was really going on in that article and a lot of times the headlines are clickbait and don't really represent what's even happening in the article itself yeah i've run into that with somebody that i debate with regularly on the internet this individual likes to go and post links to articles based just strictly on the clickbait headline not recognizing that once you go in and you read the actual article and you you go and you follow the links to say like the research paper that it references it's nothing at all what they suggest that it actually supports the counter side of the argument they're trying to make and it's kind of like dude come on step up your game read the content that you're using to support your argument because you're not providing any type of content worth a damn. Headline reading is a major problem. Again, to me, media literacy and critical thinking skills need to be taught in schools starting in like the third Well, as young people, children and young adults have greater exposure to internet and online sources, they really need to be taught how to discern what is valuable, truthful, uh, valid information and, and what is not. Well, especially in this in this world where there are so many sources of information that seem credible. You know, when when you go and you look at some of the stuff that's happened throughout the history of science and industry in the past 40, 50 years, just look at Big Tobacco. They went and they created a cottage industry on developing what appeared to be science to support their particular perspective when in reality it was pseudoscience bullshit and it just made people believe counter to what science real true science was telling people about cigarettes causing cancer and because of that belief in that pseudoscience it killed tens of millions of people so what causes science denial ironically going back to what we just talked about, predominantly to advocacy groups and economic special interests. A researcher from Yale has shown that climate change denial is fed primarily by political and ideological conservatism. It seems that some climate change deniers erroneously believe that activists simply use the topic of climate change to launch an attack on free market economies. Uh, Social scientists at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, found that in general, Social group identity is often a reliable predictor for attitudes towards climate change. To me, it comes back to think tanks. Think tanks are really driving what we believe and doing everything that they can to counter the research done by true scientists. A major problem with with science deniers is most of them ascribe to black and white thinking. Uh, Again, this, this goes back to nuance. There is no nuance to what they have to see. Things have to be black or white. It's yes or no. You either believe me or you don't believe me. There are no shades of gray. You know, in the thinking error by uh, Jeremy Shapiro, he says, in this type of cognition, a spectrum of possibilities divided into two parts. 
with a blurring of distinctions within those categories. Shades of gray are missed. Everything is considered either black or white. Dichotomous thinking is not always or inevitably wrong, but it is a poor tool for understanding complicated realities because these usually involve spectrums of possibilities, not binaries. To put that into common parlance, the issues are too complex for people to understand. People want to hear that black and white approach. This is happening or this isn't happening. This is happening tomorrow or this is not happening tomorrow. That's the problem with climate science is that it is such a massive problem on a scale of magnitude that most human beings just cannot comprehend. They can sort of understand what happens on their street, in their town, and in their county. But when you get to the state level, that's like, wow, that's that's a lot to consider. You mean it can rain in this part of the state and be bone dry in this other part of the state? I don't get how that works. When you go and you put that on the national scale, it's even more difficult to understand. And then when you get into an ecosystem as large as the globe, it's beyond most people's comprehension. So that leads to a lot of science denial because they can't think on a scale that large. Science deniers like to engage in dichotomous thinking about truth. In evaluating the evidence for a hypothesis or theory, they divide the spectrum of possibilities into two unequal parts, perfect certainty or inconclusive controversy. Any bit of data that does not support a theory is misunderstood to mean that the formulation is fundamentally in doubt regardless of the amount of supportive evidence. This is a big problem. You can't just turn around and throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is going to be some confounding measure in every study. That's where the analysis comes in so that you can eliminate that confounding effect. So this is this is one of those areas where, again, you have to understand nuance. You have to understand the scientific method. You have to understand the methodology that was used to truly understand what the information is saying. Yes, it takes work. Yes, it takes application of critical thinking skills to get to that particular point. But it's something we should all be able to do. This is something, again, that should be taught from like grade school all the way through every single year of education that we have. Yeah. The, the other part of that too is the perception that the spectrum of scientific agreement is divided into two unequal parts, perfect consensus or no consensus at all. Any departure from 100% agreement is categorized as lack of agreement, which is misinterpreted as indicating fundamental controversy in the field. Yeah, you, you can go and look at climate science in this regard. Climate science and the denial of climate science is based on this particular... Fallacy. Yeah, this particular fallacy. The reality is that if you look at people that study climate, that study our biome, that actually understand the science of what's happening within the atmosphere, 97% of those scientists believe that humans are causing climate change. Only 3% don't. And of that 3%, none of them have unified theory. The 97% have signed on to the unified theory. The unified theory being that humans are causing climate change through the introduction of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Well, and how many of the 3% are being funded by the fossil fuel industry? Probably a lot. Yeah. But also we have to recognize that there are going to be people out there who have done research and just don't agree and don't want to go and throw the weight of their research 
into another theory. Understandable. I get that. That's that's part of human nature. But the reality is that 97% have agreed to the unified theory. And the other 3% have no unified theory. It's 3% people saying it could be something else. Right. To me, it's kind of like going and, and visiting your, your doctor. And your doctor says, you know, that, that lump in that uncomfortable place, I don't like the looks of that. So I'm going to send you to a specialist. And he doesn't send you to a specialist. He sends you to a hundred specialists and a hundred specialists, all of them oncologists, look at it and they and 97% of them say, yes, that is this particular type of cancer. We recommend this particular treatment and we're going to get, get you well. We're going to start tomorrow. 3%, th- the other three doctors turn around and have completely counter views. One of them is suggesting that it's, you know, foot and mouth disease. Another one is suggesting that, you know, it's just a heat rash. And the third is turning around suggesting that maybe, you know, you drive a 63 Buick. It's leaking oil and the oil stain in your driveway is causing that particular lump. The three don't have a unified theory. The other 97% do. They all agree it's this particular type of cancer and you need to be treated for this immediately. That's where we stand on climate science right now. 97% of those who study this particular subject matter have agreed that this is what is happening and we need to act now. But for some reason, we give the other 3% an equal seat at the table and that feeds science denial. I recall when Colbert was still doing the Colbert Report, and he brought out a scientist, uh, I think it was Bill Nye, and then he brought out a a climate science denier and had them sit there and talk about the issue. And he said, this is the way the news presents this particular fact. They create a false equivalency, that the science is not in yet because you have one person here saying one thing, one person over here saying another. It appears to the consumer that the argument is fair and balanced, but it's not. So what he did was instead turn around and says, I'm going to show you how this actually works. And he brought out two people to argue with the climate science denier. And then he brought out 96 more scientists who circled the entire set. And it was like, here's how this issue really looks. 97 on one side, three on the other. And it was a stark contrast. And it was like a beautiful way to make the point that science denial is dumb. That when you're not paying attention, you can get hoodwinked into believing that the science isn't in. Here's proof of what's going on and how badly the media can spin things sometimes. Believe it or not, there is some science behind science denial. Psychologists give us insight into science denial and why it's such a powerful draw for so many. But what is it that makes science denial attractive? What is it about our brains that makes something so counter to most of our other values and beliefs seem so reasonable to those who choose to follow this banner? Are these people broken? Or is it a natural coping mechanism we are seeing from these people who deny the science? Let's talk about psychology behind science denial. Psychologists say that denial of facts is often rooted in identity and belonging, not in ignorance, and that changing minds may require a lot more than sound reasoning. 
People who deny science are often trying to uphold membership in something they find meaningful. This is according to a professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, Dr. Eliasoff. She says that uh, people may want to get a sense of meaning, a sense of community and belonging from political or religious affiliations or others, uh, some other group that prizes certain ideas or ideals. Whatever shape that group takes, that important thing is, is that it has other members and that it's a community. Once a community absorbs an idea, idea, it becomes a collective viewpoint. And if you're a member of that community, rejecting that idea can become akin to rejecting the whole community. So you're saying that science denial can be linked directly to in-group membership. That's correct. Yes. So you may be, let's use an example that we're going to talk about later, which is the flat earth people. So you could become a member of the group of people that believe that the earth is flat. And so your identity and the sense of belonging comes from you sharing beliefs with people that the earth is flat. If at a later point you learn information that may lead counter to the idea that the earth is flat, you may reject that because your your sense of belonging and your feeling that you want to be a member of that group and that community is stronger than your ability to, to deny those ideals of that group. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're suggesting that I'm willing to, to find a fact but reject it because I'm afraid I'm going to counter the belief of the group that I'm a member of. So yes. if if I am a flat earther and I find out that there's information that no, the, the horizon does drop off, that there is curvature to the earth, as scientists say, I'm willing to bury that just so I maintain my in-group status with other flat earthers. That's right. Your community, your sense of belonging, and your identity become connected to being part of that group. And identity is a really big factor for people. If um, you do something that challenges their particular identity, they're going to push back and push back as hard as they can, regardless of how much support there is to counter that particular narrative. Well, you see that with certain religious groups. If science goes against or counters their uh, beliefs that that religious group uh, maintains, then they may have a difficult time uh, accepting that science because it puts in doubt that religion and that religious community. And they, they can't handle the idea of not being part of that religious community. You mean like the earth being 6,000 years old and men living at the same time as dinosaurs? That's correct. Even though the fossil record clearly indicates that is not true and that the fossil record itself shows that the earth is much, much older than 6,000 years. Yes, that's true. That, that would be an example. Okay. Um, so how, how do these people balance their belief versus information that ultimately could challenge that or that they have to struggle with? Isn't there a level of cognitive dissonance involved with, with some of the beliefs these people hold? Well, that brings us to the next um, element behind the psychology of science denial, which is cognitive dissonance. 
What is cognitive dissonance? Experts say that our aversion to cognitive dissonance is one explanation for science denial. Cognitive dissonance is a negative emotional state characterized by discomfort or tension or feelings of anxiety or guilt that are produced from beliefs or behaviors that are inconsistent with one another. Okay, for example, a person who believes the planet is warming may also want to drive a gas-guzzling SUV. These competing interests create cognitive dissonance. Because cognitive dissonance is unpleasant, people want to get rid of it. So what do they do? They can change the behavior, which is to ditch the SUV for an electric vehicle, or they can change the belief. So basically you're saying that they're going to rationalize yes. their decision. Yes, because changing a behavior is always more difficult or usually more difficult. Changing a behavior is usually more difficult. But rationalizing that particular belief is, is much much more easy and That's right. you don't have to worry about fighting with yourself once you've rationalized that particular right. belief. Or trivialization. Trivializing the source of the dissonance. So telling yourself that switching to an electric car won't make any difference in the grand scheme. Or you add some new belief or idea that supports or rationalizes your choice. Like embracing conspiracy theories. Embracing conspiracy theories? <laughs> Expand on that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how conspiracy theories can come into play when it comes to science denial. Uh, by saying that um, climate change is something that the Democrats have made up because they want to control us um, and it's not true and they're, and they're using the leftist media as a tool. That's, that would be a conspiracy theory. Another, another example of um, the psychology behind science denial would be belief perseverance. Um, and this means that people's attachment to ideas or um, concepts that they've held in the past, they would prefer to hang on to those rather than change their minds. So we, even even though the information that they discover proves that that particular belief is wrong, they're still going to persevere in believing that just because they believe that in the past. Yes, and they will ignore the information that challenges those beliefs. They, they ignore new information that will challenge their old beliefs. So that is ultimately, clearly, truly science denial in action. Yes, and confirmation bias, as you um, discussed earlier, is seeking out and retaining only the information that supports your views, which is a related concept. And that supports the concept of belief perseverance. Interesting idea. So confirmation bias can play a, a really large part in belief perseverance. Where, where does reactance and fear come into play? Well, fear is a big one. Um, fear is a powerful motivator of denial. Reactance refers to the negative feeling that people experience when their freedom is somehow threatened. So for example, if a state or local government official tells them that they can't shop, dine, travel, or congregate as usual because of the pandemic, they will deny this or say they don't want to do it if someone finds an idea or belief to be too scary, such as global warming or COVID, that fear is a powerful motivator to deny those things. No one wants to think about the inevitability of perhaps the planet being uninhabitable at some point. So they would prefer to deny it rather than accept that that could be an inevitable outcome of global warming. So it's the ostrich in the head in the sand. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. Exactly. I'm concerned about the impact that science denial is having. Oh, the impact is obviously pretty substantial. Neil deGrasse Tyson 
says the United States rose from a backwards country to one of the greatest nations the world has ever known thanks to science. It was the United States that put humans on the moon and whose big thinkers created the personal computer and the internet. These are things that we take for granted every single day. Tyson goes on to say we pioneered industries. Science is the fundamental part of the country that we are. And to deny that is to deny the United States as we know it. It's un-American to deny science. Yet we have so many movements afoot in this country to deny science and the very things that made the United States one of the greatest countries in the history of the world. The American empire was built on science. It established the United States as an empirical force around the globe. Science denial will be the weight that crushes the American empire. Tyson went on to say, in the 21st century, a disturbing trend took hold. People have lost the ability to judge what is true and what is not. Well, I think that goes back to what we had mentioned earlier in regards to the post-truth era. Yeah, Donald Trump has done immense damage to our country and, and the institutions that have made the United States one of the greatest countries on the planet. But probably the greatest damage that he did was creation of this post-truth society we now find ourselves living in. Facts no longer matter. Yeah, he says, it's not something to say I choose not to believe E equals MC squared. You don't have that option. Tyson points to scientific issues that have become highly controversial. Vaccinations, human-caused climate change, genetically modified foods, even evolution. Tyson suggests that those who understand science the least are the people who are now rising to power and denying it the loudest. This is a recipe for the complete dismantling of our informed democracy. Therein lies the problem informed democracy. People need to be informed. And our media institutions no longer inform. Our politicians no longer tell the truth. Nobody is held to account anymore. Nobody is speaking truth to power. Science used to provide a portion of that particular voice. That has been muted under the Donald J. Trump administration. When he can silence the CDC from talking about an active pandemic, that tells you our country is on the wrong path. Yeah. Uh, he goes on to say, emergent scientific truths are true whether a person believes them or not. The sooner you understand that, the faster we can get on with the political conversations about how to solve the problems that face us. But therein lies the problem. We're not getting to that point where everybody is believing the same set of facts. And until the scientific community regains that voice, until money is taken out of these think tanks that generate all these papers that cloud the issues. They're not generating truth. They're not generating facts that can be scientifically examined through, you know, empirical study. No, it's propaganda. That's what exactly what it is. Propaganda. They are creating propaganda and spreading disinformation about science. And that leads to science denial. Another issue is that they're, the way in which they release the propaganda, they're making it appear to be science and making it appear to be true. And, and people aren't, as we said earlier, reading past those headlines to really get to the meat of the information and what is actually being said and what is actually true. I, I think Tyson was right on the money when he says that every minute a person is denial only delays the political solution. Voters and citizens need to learn what science is and how it works to make informed decisions. If that is not happening, we're failing as a democracy. 
you were witnessing yet another one of the death throes of the American empire. And we're willfully sitting back and observing it and doing nothing about it. When we can halt this, we can change our approach to science and, and understand how important science is to every man, woman, and child in the United States. It's insane that we are in a period of science denial. If you are looking for the perfect example of science denial, you likely don't have to go much further than the Flat Earth community. Flat Earthers, as they like to be called, dismiss the scientific premise that the world is a globe traveling through space in a galaxy that at the same time is traveling through the universe. If members of this group themselves can't see or feel it, then it doesn't exist. Even when their own beliefs cannot be proven through their pseudoscience approach, they hold firm to their beliefs over that which the scientific community has managed to prove and support with study after study. But are their beliefs that far out there? Let's take this ball out for a spin and see for ourselves. So Martha, let's talk about flat earthers. What do flat earthers believe? Well, that the earth is flat. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you for the statement of the obvious. <laughs> um, it has been described as the ultimate conspiracy theories. They believe that uh, the earth is flat. Um, and I think they come upon that belief because when we walk around on the earth's surface, it looks and feels flat. So they think that any evidence to the contrary is untrue. And they rationalize that as part of the round earth conspiracy that they think is orchestrated by NASA and other government agencies. Okay, when I walk on my driveway, it feels flat to me. But when they went and poured that, they went and poured it with a very slight crown to it so that the water would run off the driveway and onto the grass. So are you telling me that my driveway is actually flat? <laughs> I'm telling you that that's what the Flat Earth Society would claim. Gotcha. Because I cannot see with my own eyes how that particular surface is convex, that makes it flat. Yes. Okay. Yes. We've learned something new today. Whenever they are given evidence to the contrary of their belief, they will write it off and deny it um, and readily accept all of these ideas that are promoted within their group, the Flat Earth Movement. Um, so they're more apt to accept the ideas of the in-group as part of their in-group and deny things that are contrary to the beliefs of that group. Okay, so if the Earth is flat, how do they explain the continents? How do they explain the North and South Pole? How do they explain rotation of the Earth, the four seasons? How do they explain this stuff away? Well, the flat Earth movement, if you want to call it that, is not one singular cohesive movement. They have a lot of different theories about the way that this works, and some of them believe that they're living in that we're living in a dome. Others believe that. Antarctica is a mass that goes on forever in all directions and is an infinite plane. So there's a number of different ideas that this group believes and perpetuates. So they're saying that Earth is flat. 
how do they explain physics away something as simple as gravity? They say that gravity is an illusion. Objects do not accelerate downward in their belief scheme. They, because the Earth is a disk, they believe that things accelerate upward. And this is done by a mysterious force called dark energy. So flat earthers don't believe in unified theory. They don't have any type of consistent theory that says this is what we believe the flat earth looks like. All got different perspectives on this. What's what's their take on what NASA has to say about this? They believe that NASA is orchestrating what they call a round earth conspiracy. And it's NASA and other government agencies who are a tool of the Illuminati or the New World Order, which is, is incorporating other uh, types of conspiracies into, into their theory. And one of the reasons they suggest is uh, financial, that it's easier to to stage the moon landing and and believe that the moon landing was fake that would be easier and less expensive for the government than to actually go to the moon but why why would governments around the world want to participate in this particular conspiracy and what benefit does it provide to all of these governments we would have to ask a flat earther that so why do flat earthers believe what they believe? Does it go back to just psychology and in-group membership and that you possibly have people that have been outcasts, possible social misfits that are just looking for a place where they fit? Yes, I think that's a big part of it. There has been research to show that conspiracy theorists and flat earthers in particular want to be unique. They tend to have lower levels of education and lower analytical and critical thinking skills. Uh, being in the flat earth community gives them a sense of belonging, feeling of being a part of something important and bigger than themselves. So because of that particular membership, it gives them an el elevated sense of worth, an elevated sense of, of self. But how do they square their lack of scientific expertise to counter the wealth of scientific proof that goes against the flat earth model and the flat earth belief system? It's propaganda by the government. The, the majority of information that they say that that we consider science um, is propaganda by the government. To them, it's part of that conspiracy. They they entwine it into another conspiracy of the government wanting to conceal the truth. But don't they try and run experiments of their own? Don't they try to yes, prove they do. what? They do. Don't they try and prove their theories to be true by applying? scientific theory? They do experiments and they do try to use scientific method, yes. And what happens when that scientific method disproves their belief structure? Then we go back to science denial. They deny evidence to the, and any evidence to the contrary of their beliefs is denied. So they will basically go and bury the findings that they themselves yes. have come across. Absolutely. Yep. So where do these people learn about the flat earth. Interestingly, the majority of them learn about it through YouTube. A scientist went to a flat earth convention and spoke with members of flat earth society and asked them that specific question. How did you learn about the flat earth movement? And the majority of them said they learned about it from YouTube. And how it happened was that they were looking for other things on YouTube. And depending on the types of things that they were searching for, for example, moon landing denial. People who search for moon landing denial would often be given as a recommendation for the next thing to watch 
something about the flat earth. So as more people started to watch these flat earth videos and like them, YouTube, the analytics in YouTube, started recommending them to more people. So the YouTube algorithm basically continues to foment science denial and by pushing these crazy conspiracy theories out for people that are susceptible exactly to these conspiracy exactly. theories. Exactly. And that the more people who click on them, the more likely that the algorithm will then recommend it to more people. And then the the people who are who become part of the organization will then find other like-minded people online and become in a group. Then it's a matter of in-group thinking and becoming a member of that community. So it's a self-perpetuating myth that yes. is being built by a YouTube algorithm. Yep. So and who 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 are these flat earthers? Well, there's no way for us to know exactly how many people adhere to these beliefs. But interestingly, a marketing firm says that flat earth is the third most Google conspiracy after Sandy Hook and Area 51. And also, it's interesting to note that according to the Flat Earth Society themselves, they say that their ranks are growing by 200 people, mostly Americans and British, and that has happened every year since 2009. So um, it seems to be a movement that is expanding. And once people become a part of the group, they're not very likely to, to leave that group because it, it becomes a, a community, a, a tight-knit community. And I recognize the community. I recognize what the community is. But who are these flat earthers? Is there an individual that is susceptible to becoming a flat earther, more likely to becoming a flat earther? Well, people who believe even conspiracy theories. So conspiracy theorists are, are likely to uh, fall into the trap of being a flat earther and in doing so, denying science. Yes, absolutely. Science denial and holding a belief is one thing, but what happens when a group takes action against science and works against something that has helped humanity? Vaccinations have pushed many infectious diseases to the brink of annihilation and made our world stronger for it. But a very vocal group of people have coalesced around the debunked theory that these very inoculations that make us stronger have terrible outcomes in other areas. These people have taken action and begun an anti-vaccination movement where their children are no longer receiving their shots and becoming the weakest link in the chain that protects the herd. Are vaccinations safe, or are we hurting ourselves by following the scientific lead? When was the first vaccination introduced? First vaccination uh, was discovered in the late 1790s in response to a smallpox outbreak that was devastating Europe. At the time, it killed approximately 400,000 people a year and left many more blind and disfigured. The Chinese had discovered that if you used the scabs from people who had recovered from smallpox and went and crushed that down to a powder that you could then go and use that on the postules and it would help heal those up a lot quicker. So a Scottish doctor named Edward Jenner popularized the idea of infecting patients with similar but much milder cowpox virus to immunize them from smallpox. Jenner published his findings in 1796 and by 1800 more than 100,000 people had been vaccinated against smallpox. 
I didn't realize it was that long ago that we had vaccinations. That's really surprising to me, and I think it's going to be surprising other people. I'm curious, when was the first anti-vaxxer? Interestingly enough, about the same time, an English doctor named Benjamin Mosley emerged as a prominent early anti-vaxxer. Mosley still endorsed a different treatment that was more in line with his area of study. In an 1806 essay, he claimed milking cows matter into humans was a violation of natural law. He described fictional post-vaccination ailments like cowpox face and speculated that British women might wander into the fields to receive the embraces of a bull. So even when you have a positive come out from something like vaccination against a brutal disease like smallpox, there's always going to be people out there who, whether it be through professional jealousy or ideological or theological perspectives that are going to say, no, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work for me. And they're going to go and promote their particular perspective to the masses and try and turn them against something that is ultimately going to help people. What are some diseases that are currently eradicated or controlled by vaccination? There's actually lots of them. We pretty well wiped out polio around the globe. Until we started to have anti-vaxxers in the U.S. Until we started having... And they had a resurgence. Exactly. Um, So, you know, you can look at polio, tetanus, influenza is pretty much controlled. Even though it mutates year to year, we have the ability to go and vaccinate against it. Hepatitis B, hepatitis A, rubella measles, whooping cough, rotavirus, mumps, chickenpox, diphtheria, tuberculosis, smallpox, rabies, malaria. There's all sorts of other diseases that we can go and vaccinate against to help people give them some type of prophylactic against them getting a particular disease. Something is as bad as uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, but better known as mad cow disease. There's even, you know, a a vaccination available for it. Um, HPV, there's a vaccination for that. Again, we continue to, to find new ways to fight diseases that have negative outcomes. So one would wonder why. Why would you have an anti vaxxer who are they and, and what are some of their beliefs? Well, an anti-vaxxer is someone who refuses to be vaccinated or allow their children to be vaccinated. Anti-vaccination is an ideology. You know, it's seen as, as being a contradiction of the overwhelming medical and scientific consensus. And because of that has ultimately led to deaths and outbreaks of diseases that vaccines have long ago prevented from breaking out. In the past few years, we've seen outbreaks of measles, a disease that was pretty much eradicated in the United States. And it's strictly because people have refused to get their kids vaccinated. Or people people dying of the flu when when because they're not getting flu shots. People are going to die from the flu regardless of getting the flu shot. The flu shot is beneficial for treating very specific strains of the flu and also weakening others. If you are immunocompromised, you are likely going to have a rough go of the flu regardless of the situation. The flu shot, getting immunized against it, is going to increase your odds of survivability. 
it's going to give you the best chance of getting through a bad flu season. Okay, so something that I want to talk about, which is the most prominent thing, I think, in the anti-vaccination movement, um, and that is autism. So can you talk a little bit about the study that, that started the anti-vax autism movement? Yeah, there's there's a British doctor that goes by the name of Wakefield. He made headlines back, I think it was in like in 1998, he made a claim that there was a direct link between measles, mumps, rubella, MMR vaccine, and autism. He went and did a study, supposedly complied with the scientific method to do the research. He went and published his findings, except that lo and behold, he fudged his findings. He went and published information that was not accurate. He he went and first published his findings in the British journal called The Lancet, and that basically led to a lot of people pointing to this research and saying, well, geez, um, that's that's what's causing my child's autism, is this particular vaccination. The Lancet retracted the article in 2010 after Wakefield's research was found to be dishonest by the General Medical Council in Great Britain. And later in 2011, the British Medical Journal went and published articles against this particular research. But the damage had already been done. Exactly. The genie was out of the bottle. And people now were were making the assumption, because there is a correlation between the time that a child takes an MMR virus and the time at which young people are diagnosed with autism, those two things are correlated. Yes, you are getting an MMR when you're that age, and you may be diagnosed with autism at that age, but the fact that they're correlated does not mean that one causes the other. They're confusing correlation with causation. Yes, what's, what's the old adage about correlation and causation? They're not the same. So yeah, this is this is an issue and, and subsequent studies in the last eight years have found no link between the MMR vaccine and autism or any other disease. And unfortunately, it was spread by some prominent people, celebrities, and other people in the media. And we still have parents now, a decade later, believing that these vaccinations cause autism and are refusing to get their children vaccinated. And then they're ending up spreading measles yeah, in yeah. a school. Yeah, exactly. The British Journal basically said that this article was described as the most damaging medical hoax of the last hundred years because of the hesitancy in people getting their children immunized, the negative outcomes have been devastating. Yeah, and it's easier for for parents to point a finger externally and say, it was that vaccination. It's, It's something that they can look at and say, that vaccination caused my child's autism when it when it is more of a complex issue than that. Very much so. Many many parents of children with autism struggle with the condition because they're forced to internalize the ailment as something that they have passed along to their children. You know, rather than face this reality and acknowledge genetics having a level of randomness beyond any individual's control, they still look for an outside cause of their child's autism and assign the blame there. It is genetic. It is something that is going to happen. It's mutation that does happen. So my question then is how does this spread? How do how do we go from this anti-vax autism link, you know, the the community of parents who are anti-vaxxers because they don't want their children to get autism, which is ridiculous. But how do we go from that to now people saying that they are not going to get vaccinated even if we find a vaccine for COVID 
COVID-19, they're going to refuse to get vaccinated. How do we, how did this spread to all these other diseases? Well, I think it boils down to the unknown. The unknown is, is very dangerous territory. Coupled with the intellectual cesspool that we, that is the internet, uh, you have potential for disaster waiting to happen. Now, misinformation and disinformation continue to spread falsehoods that are not, that not only put individuals at risk, but put the entire human race at risk. It, it's, it's sad that we put so much faith in celebrities, but the ones that are really forwarding this particular cause are celebrities. And they're very vocal. They are very vocal and they have a platform. That is a scary thing is that we have passed along this particular bully pulpit to people that don't understand science, don't understand the scientific method, but they have been impacted this personally and they have turned it into a very personal issue. So for them, it's a crusade. And I, I respect these people and, you know, them wanting to go out and find answers. But the approach they're taking is not helping in the bigger picture. Them turning around and, and inaccurately pointing the finger at immunizations and vaccines is dangerous dangerous territory. And also the fact of you're not just, you know, if you say, okay, I don't want my child immunized because you fear that your child will become autistic as a result of vaccinations, you're not just putting your child, your own child at risk. You may be putting a whole school at risk if your child isn't vaccinated and then spreading measles to other children who could die as a result. Yes, you hit the nail right on the head. This is all about risk. But again, just just like the flat earth conspiracy, anti-vax is very much a conspiracy all unto itself. Like you say, the, the internet is the number one place where you're going to see information like this continue to spread. QAnon. How did QAnon relate to this? One example of this is how supporters of QAnon, the pro-Trump network of conspiracy theorists, are increasingly sharing anti-vaccination material. High-profile members have been promoting the false theory that the coronavirus was deliberately developed and spread by Bill Gates, the Microsoft co-founder and pro-vaccination health campaigner. I can't say how dangerous that is. Not only are we pointing a finger at somebody who is trying to do good around the globe and help so many people in poor situations better their lives, but we discredit we discredit the science and we discredit the institutions that are out there trying to help people at the same time. It's a very dangerous message. It's a very dangerous conspiracy theory that is being spread, and it is nothing but a bold-faced lie. Anti-vaxxers are also seizing on the fact that some developers are using a relatively new technology called messenger RNA that attempts to alter the body's protein-making machinery. They're spreading concerns that we are genetically manipulating people's bodies and that we are doing that to their detriment more so than to their benefit. Again, they don't understand the technology behind messenger RNA or how that whole particular process works. This is using messenger RNA is a fantastic way of getting to the root of some of these genetic issues and snuffing them out at the encoding point. So the fact that they're pushing back against this 
is also another scary development. Is the anti-vaxxer perspective gaining acceptance in American society? Unfortunately, it is. Polls show that as the pandemic has continued, U.S. citizens have become less confident about the safety of a vaccine. Polling by YouGov in May found that 55% of U.S. adults said they would get a COVID-19 vaccine. By the end of July, that figure had dropped to 41%, well below the 60-70% to public health experts think will be needed to achieve herd immunity. Yeah, and I heard Dr. Fauci say something similar, that he was extremely concerned about the anti-vaxxer movement, and he said that he was very, very concerned that not enough people would get vaccinated when COVID vaccine becomes available. And based on the statistics and, and some of the narratives you're hearing out you know, in that wonderful cesspool called the internet, that is probably very likely to happen. And again, we have to achieve 60 to 70% to have a chance at herd immunity. The higher that's a the minimum. Yeah, yeah, that's a minimum. The higher the better. The statistics for herd immunity are more likely in the 85 to 90% range. So the fact that we are trying to work with a number of 60 to 70% puts us behind the proverbial eight ball to begin with. We will not develop herd immunity at that particular percentage point. We need to push it higher. People have to go in. They have to get vaccinated. People refusing to get vaccinated is just another example of science denial at its highest degree. What's the big deal with science denial? So what if you don't listen to a bunch of brainiacs that want to tell us what to do? What could possibly go wrong? There couldn't be any negative outcomes for the United States, could there? I mean, seriously, what could possibly go wrong? Does science denial pose possible risks to the United States? I believe so. I think that as long as we continue to accept science denial, we put a number of issues on the table that could negatively impact the United States of America. As long as we continue to deny science, we are denying the very thing that made the United States the empire it became during the 20th century. If we continue to deny science, what countries are going to follow our leadership? If they look at us and say they don't believe in science, they don't follow science, they don't believe in the very things that our scientists are proving on a day-to-day basis, how can we follow them to a better place? Well, there's so many issues that if we continue to deny them, we put ourselves behind the eight ball. I mean, we we can't continue to deny climate change. We can't continue to be against vaccinations. We can't survive as a species by not solving some of these problems. I mean, one quarter of the COVID cases in the world are now in the U.S., and the U.S. population only makes up 4% of the world's population, hey, that's that, a disgrace. It is, it is, but that could ultimately lead to the thinning of the herd in the United States. Again, that's a risk. A country like the United States, we have to be very concerned about a thinning of the herd. That is a possible negative outcome we need to be aware of and be very concerned about. Now, again, our, our leadership role, we're abdicating it. Well, we'll never, we won't be leaders in, in technology fields. We won't be leaders in scientific research anymore. And what's what's the negative outcome of that as far as the economy goes? Right now, we are very much an economy that is focused 
in on two things, innovation and consumerism. Well, if we start denying science, we're going to deny innovation. We're going to deny the very science that allows for innovation, which means we're going to become nothing but a consumer-based economy. We're not going to be able to afford to do anything because there's going to be no high-paying jobs in this country. We won't have young people going into science and technology areas. And without a youth base of people who are achieving in those areas, it's going to put us as a second world or third world nation. And that's probably the biggest issue that we have is the long-term viability of the nation itself. If we continue denying science, that is going to crush our healthcare industry because people are not going to follow what scientists are telling them as far as how to maintain their health. That means they're going to get sick and they're going to turn to our healthcare system and it's going to get crushed under the weight, pardon the pun, of all of the people out there that are getting overweight and getting sick with these diseases that come along with obesity and it's ultimately going to lead to ruination of our healthcare system. Most importantly, it's going to, when, when all of that comes crashing together, in that perfect storm, when we lose our leadership position, when our economic might fades away, when we have to spend so much on our healthcare system, all of a sudden, everything is going to begin to implode upon itself. It'll be a perfect storm. It will be. It'll be a perfect storm where we are no longer considered a first world nation. Our economy will be based just strictly on service industry jobs and hopefully bringing tourists into the country so that people from other parts of the world can come here and spend their money that they're making from the innovations that happen in their countries because we're no longer innovating here. We won't be able to compete with the economies of other countries that are prioritizing science and technology and innovation. Yes, it goes back to the Obama administration and them wanting to try and kickstart the green revolution in the United States. No, we denied the science there. If we had bought into it, we would be the world leaders in those technologies instead of handing that particular crown off to the Chinese, the Germans, the South Africans, and whoever else is out there doing innovation in the new green technology marketplace. Scandinavian countries. Scandinavian countries. You can continue going down the road. You know, Saudi Arabia is making massive investments in green technologies. Which is crazy to think about how... They were an oil-based economy for so long, and now they're going green. But they recognize that the world can no longer run on oil. Right. But we still need energy. So what are they going to do? They're going to invest in that. They're going to use science to their advantage. And that's pretty scary. When Saudi Arabia, one of the most closed societies on this planet, planet is still ahead of the United States in adoption of science and technology and does not have the same level of science denial that we have in this country. Well, that's a wrap on this week's episode. There is no denying the importance of science in our society, but our culture continues to slide towards denial. We hope this episode was informative and gave you some interesting arguments to think about. Most importantly, we hope you enjoyed our back and forth and will subscribe so you don't miss any future content. Feel free to swing by and visit us at theexcitedstates.com for more content and commentary. Next week, we'll be discussing media's influence on our society, so please join us. 
Thank you for listening and the investment of your time. The Excited States of America is a production of people who have just given up on the system. Segment production is by Martha. Engineering is by George. Writing is by Martha, George, our contributors, and our listeners. The funny bits are strictly George's work. Production notes can be found at theexcitedstates.com. If you like our content, please subscribe and share with your friends. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than those of the authors. The same disclaimers extend to our guests and content contributors. Views are subject to change, revision, or rethinking as more information comes available and cultural expectations shift around us. This podcast and any associated written work is protected by copyright, along with the First Amendment protections afforded by the U.S. Constitution. Comments may be submitted through theexcitedstates.com, but be aware, comments are the sole responsibility of the writer and shall take full responsibility and liability for any libel or litigation from said comments. We reserve the right to moderate comments submitted for the protection of the innocent and the ignorant. Change begins with an idea. Leadership begins taking that idea, developing a following, and creating action. Let's change direction by discussing ideas, not ideals. This has been a Bunny Hug production.